That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus focused vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high-quality, naturopathic doctor-designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Okay, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. It's Dr. David Miller here, naturopathic doctor, with my sidekick, Michelle Pobega. What's happening? naturopathic doctor don't forget Connor was always listening yeah so uh, (laughs) with the official titles I'm good I'm good I feel good today I've been trying to consistently work out again COVID whatever era it was like up and down up and down up and down and this week I was like you're gonna do this you're gonna commit to your (laughs) self-care again and I feel like it's a very appropriate week since we have a really awesome guest today who is I think you're, I think an exercise enthusiast as well, from what I remember of you and, uh, but also really good with metabolic health and helping people with weight management, especially resistant weight, man- weight management, but doing it in a way that's very comprehensive and really supports optimal health on a total whole person level. So today our guest is Dr. Brianne Callanen. She is a naturopathic doctor, creator of the metabolic reset program and a best-selling author of the book, wild and free. She believes in health optimization and that low energy and feeling unwell should not be a part of aging. And I love that. Thank you for coming to our show, Brian. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I did start working out today and then I was like, okay, my motivation is we're going to talk about metabolism and weight management and I need to practice what I preach. So mm-hmm. I hit it up this week. <laughs> How are your muscles feeling? I always find that first week. It's like, I can't sit on the toilet. It's okay. It's okay. You know, if I, I remember, I think I mentioned this once in a podcast too, because I used to dance ballet and I remember after summer break and it'd be the first day of going back to like intense class. And the next morning I'd be like rigor mortis girl. Like I can barely get myself out of bed, but it was a great feeling because it it wasn't like sore joints. It wasn't pain in that sense. It's a different type of sensation where, um, and I kind of enjoyed it. So it's, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice reminder of what that felt like to to be aware of my body again, which it's, it's good. Amazing. Yeah. Nice. So Brianne, we've had, 
we've had a, a couple guests I think talk about weight loss, and it, I, I I think they're always courageous. Whoever talks about weight loss, because um, people can come at you from so many different uh, aspects with with regards to the talk about weight loss or weight management, um, and uh, maybe everyone deals with it in a different sort of. A way like for example i don't focus on it in practice i love it as a metric of things moving in the right direction but it's a lot of, it's on a lot of people's minds so maybe you can tell us like a little bit of background like why you sort of got into this and and you know why why it's your your sort of jam mm-hmm. so i first started with the traditional approach to weight loss right the eat less the exercise more track your macros track your calories and that worked for a certain percentage of the patients that I saw. We did a lot of carb cycling, intermittent fasting. It did work, but there was always this subset of patients where it was not working no matter what they did. And unfortunately, these individuals were becoming very unmotivated. They're not seeing the results. And the whole medical system of blaming patients for their weight was very disheartening. So many individuals were coming to me just saying, you know, I'm not being heard. And it was their body appearance that was holding them back. So that's where I started to look at, okay, what are some of the similarities between these patients who are not seeing the typical expected results and diving into more of the underlying root causes of resistant weight loss and how hormones really dictate what calories do in the body, hormones, gut health, really, really key to have a look at for these patients because it shouldn't be so hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where do you start i mean where do you uh, let's let's go with that like say let, before we get to like the tough cases um what's the sort of uh you know beginning stages like you know the abcs of of what you like to do with patients when they come to you pretty fresh and green mm-hmm. so always if i can running comprehensive blood work is a really great start so looking at where are the sex hormones where is the insulin where is the thyroid Where's the vitamin D? Is there any underlying causes that could be making this more challenging for this patient? And then also looking at the levels and saying, are these truly within the optimal range for each patient? You can also look at genetics too, looking at what particular genetic um, tendencies individuals have for a predictive factor of how many carbohydrates can they consume and pairing that with blood work is often helpful. All of that stuff is really nice because then the patients have an objective measure Mm -hmm. and we can really say, okay, here's the problem for you. And here's why we're doing what we're doing. If patients are just given a supplement and they don't really understand why, and they don't have any of that objective proof, I find the compliance is a little bit tricky. So I like doing the blood work, but more important is really looking at what is their mindset, Mm. right? Are they sleeping? Are they truly happy? What are their stress levels like? Because if that aspect is not taken into account, it doesn't matter what you do in terms of the blood work. You're always kind of masking an underlying thing. So I really think the mental health and the mindset piece is huge. And that's why we always do weekly coaching. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. I like that too, because that is a big limiting factor. You know, it's going to be a factor in someone's motivation to keep doing the work. Mm -hmm. Or we need to troubleshoot things. So when we're looking at doing dietary interventions and we're strategically removing some of the foods that could create inflammation for people, if you add the food back in, even if it's unintentional or maybe it was intentional or something's off plan, you need a support person to be able to get that information and know how to interpret the signs from the body. So if you eat something off plan and it makes you feel really unwell, it's not a a bad thing necessarily, but it's feedback that we want to know for you for the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
That's such an important thing. Like, how do you, how do you work with that with people? Like uh, there's other, maybe um, I've heard other people talk about like somatic intelligence, like a kind of body awareness that goes with that. Uh, how do you, how do you work with that? Because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I find difficult is when you have someone who's in a, a state, maybe where they eat fast food three times a day, and basically they don't even know what it's like to feel good. So then when they eat fast food the next day or 10 days later, they're like, uh, well, it doesn't do anything. And so there's no change compare that to like, say an elimination diet or someone like eliminate stuff for a few weeks, then they eat the same food and they feel like they've dropped like, you know, a hundred points in the, in the sort of vitality or whatever, like they can tell because they had a chance to feel good. So how do you work that muscle with people that sort of like knowing what makes you feel good and what doesn't? Mm -hmm. I think when the patients come to me, they're at a point where they just want to feel better. They're feeling pretty frustrated, pretty defeated. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in terms of we're always screening patients, of course, for issues with disordered eating and, and body dysmorphia, and we are very cautious with the mindset piece. We do use the scale as a tool to measure, you know, if your weight goes up, three pounds overnight, you didn't gain three pounds or something that caused a really big inflammatory reaction. So it's important to look at the mindset around that to say, this is good feedback. This is something that's bringing awareness that we can find out the reason why, and then look at, you know, maybe X, Y, and Z foods are inflammatory for foods for you. We need to keep those out. So I think if you use the scale in a very strategic way and for a lot of the individuals that are working with me, we're doing really big changes to their nutrition, but we're doing it intentionally. So everything that we do, we want to make sure there's a reason that we're doing it. So if we're reducing carbohydrates, it's because the individual we can see has higher levels of insulin. But once the insulin comes back into optimal, then we add them back in. So I think because we're so hands-on with patients and we do such a dramatic shift in their nutrition, that we're not doing processed foods. Like the patients that I work with, processed foods every once in a while, not the end of the world. But if you're looking to really get the results you want, we're working around the mindset of just not consuming those types of foods. Now, do you, so do you have like a team of people mm-hmm. that, that work together? Because if there's weekly coaching, is that done? Is that done with you? Is that done with somebody else that's like nutritionist or something? How is this? Mm-hmm. How's your program actually? How's it um, going? Yeah. So, yeah. I have amazing health coaches. I've got a team of health coaches that they really work on the mindset aspect of it and the monitoring of these um, individuals. So it is something that's monitored really closely. Of course, if anything comes up that needs my attention, they can book in with me. And oftentimes the first appointment is with me. We get the blood work done. We say, okay, here are the things that we need to address based off of your overall risk factors for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, things like that. Here are our goals. And then we can repeat the blood work at the end to see, you know, how much progress are we, have we, have we received? Mm-hmm. Awesome. You said something at the beginning with standard testing. Do you find, do you reach for genetic testing frequently or do you find that usually comes up with more of the challenging cases or is that more of like a almost immediate kind of screen that you have with clients? If they've already done their genetic testing, oftentimes we can review that. I do find the genetic testing can be particularly helpful to say, here's what you're more predisposed to um, having. Now, many of the patients have significant changes on their blood work, like their insulin resistance is really high, their inflammation is high. Those are things that we know we can act on right away. So we typically try to say, okay, this is a pressing issue. This is what we need to work on now to get you the results you want. 
once that comes into optimal, I'm actually looking at genetics a little bit later on in, in the treatment process mm. to say, okay, we've got this under control. Now let's figure out what your baseline genetic risk is. I see. So it's not always like a first, a first, um, part of your plan. It's, it's usually standard lab work to rule out, uh, hormonal imbalances, including insulin, thyroid, and mm -hmm. sex hormones and inflammation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I find too, if, if there's a significant problem with the blood work and we can get individuals to feel better faster, then they're more likely to stick around. Absolutely. Well, yeah. You got to get traction, right? It's, it's, um, I don't think we talk about it at school when we're trained really, but I find in real life, you do need that, right? Cause people want to, they do want to feel something better soon if possible. Right. Cause you're putting effort in. So mm -hmm. absolutely, yeah. yeah. What do you, Brianne, what do you, what do you feel like are the most common sort of like things that myths or, or things that have gone wrong before people come and, and start working with you? Like when they, when they say, Oh, I've tried this and like, what are the most common myths or problems they've run into before you start working together with them? So I commonly see individuals, um, the whole notion of, I have to eat multiple mini meals throughout the day, right? Mm -hmm. It's better mm -hmm. to eat every couple hours to boost your metabolism. Well, if you're doing that, especially with carbohydrates, you're always spiking your insulin. So if you are predisposed to producing too much insulin, which is a fat storage hormone, doing that's not going to be helpful. So I remember when I first started, um, with my practice and talking about intermittent fasting, it, it really was not um, a thing that people did. So it was always like, well, now you're um, getting away from intuitive eating and you're predisposing individuals to disordered eating patterns, which in particular individuals that can be a problem. But what we have to remember is our ancestors didn't eat all the time, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have access to these foods all of the time, or even when I was growing up, you couldn't just, you know, go get a snack, you would spoil your dinner, right? So Absolutely. we've kind of shifted the way that we eat in our society, and we're eating on the go, or not resting and digesting. So I think snacking is a particularly big problem for individuals. It impairs your sleep if you have a big meal before bed. Mm -hmm. So just kind of getting away from the notion that you have to eat all the time can be particularly, particularly helpful. I yeah, think, I love that you, sorry, go on, Michelle. No, I just think the fact that if you have to snack frequently, then you didn't have a balanced meal in the first place. That, that's kind of what that says, says to me. If you're, if you're on a roller, like blood sugar roller coaster, you're going to have high, high dips and valleys, and it's going to make you reach for more quick foods and fuels, which just mm -hmm. means that your, your first meal of your day or your bigger meals are probably not balanced enough to keep your blood sugar regulated for a longer period of time. That is always a red flag to me. If someone feels they need to snack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also too, right? Like going back to the mindset piece, if we're looking at wanting to change a behavior, it's often an emotion that triggers the behavior. And before that emotion becomes a thought. So, mm -hmm. so many individuals are not even aware of these thoughts that they're perpetually repeating in their heads too. That's yeah. creating more of the problem with the emotional eating. So I think mm -hmm. a lot of individuals downplay the amount of stress that they have and they downplay those even subconscious thoughts that they're having and the stories that they tell themselves on a daily basis. I think we really need to start to recognize some of those things so we can become more mindful in the way that we eat or more intuitive in the way that we eat. That's true. Yeah. I think it's cool. You brought up the, you know, our ancestors too. I, I love looking back to like anthropological biology or, or whatever and going like, imagine you're some, you know, early hominid and you're as if you're going to eat six, seven times a day. That's you spend your, you would spend your whole day 
foraging like i mean you already did enough i think you couldn't do that so for those that sort of ascribe to that um our origins as kind of indicating the way our phys- physiology should be i think that's a i like i like highlighting that you you brought that up because it's just it's not that so i don't know it seems like a 90s thing where you were supposed to eat all the time and there was like the thermal thermogenic effect of eating and it's like mm-hmm. it's couldn't be more wrong i think the, the five small meals a day right yeah was that yep. thought that and it's going to increase your body temperature which will make you uh burn more calories because you're just a calorimeter <laughs> yeah is it like to a degree right if you eat foods with a high thermogenic effect like protein okay but the problem is individuals who are snacking are grabbing like granola bars right or cheese mm-hmm. and crackers right um or cookies and that afternoon pick-me-up so it, mm-hmm. it's we're also eating the wrong types of foods too the other thing that patients will come to me commonly with is saying, you know, I've, I've tried keto. Now, keto can mean a lot of different things, right? You can do a really clean, low carbohydrate, or you could do a very unhealthy, low yeah. carbohydrate nutrition plan. But for some individuals, if they overdo saturated fats, especially when that's combined with a low protein diet, that can make weight loss resistance worse. Right. Mm. So some individuals who are doing a ketogenic diet, that's really, really high in saturated fats. That's not going to be the best fit for them. So it becomes frustrated when they say, you know, my sister did keto and she lost 50 pounds and I lost two and felt like junk. Yeah. What's going on in those cases? I don't, I don't know about this sort of uh, physiology or I don't, I don't see this pattern a lot. What's going on there? So the FTO gene variant doesn't do well with a high percentage of saturated fats. So if you can look at that gene on some of the genetic reports, it's not that you can't have saturated fats, but it's you want to keep it roughly under 28 to 30 grams a day. So for those individuals, if you're having a tablespoon of MCT oil, that's about 14 grams. That's your half mm-hmm. your daily dose just in your coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. So maybe choosing some other sources of healthy fats like walnuts, nuts, and seeds that are lower in the saturated fats. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have steak and it doesn't mean that you can't have grass-fed butter. Those things definitely can be helpful for many individuals. Love it, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe you don't have butter, steak, hamburgers, MCT oil, cheddar cheese, nachos in a day. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Pick and choose your battles. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Although that sounds like a dynamite day. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I would definitely do steak. I would definitely choose the steak and butter over everything else. Personally, yeah, too much. What happens to those? What happens to those people? Like, I don't know this gene variant. So, what's what's happening in them if they have too much saturated fat? Like, is there is there a bit of like nerdy physiology stuff that's going on downstream, or is it microbiome stuff? Yeah. Well, we do know. I know from the gut microbiome standpoint, if you have a high percentage of fats in your diet that can lower a key bacteria called acromantia. And acromantia mucinophila is really important for weight management. Mm-hmm. There is an association with lower acromantia and increased caloric extraction from the foods you eat, mm-hmm. as well as more insulin resistance, more inflammation, more predisposed to obesity. Now it's kind of like the chicken or the egg idea, right? Yeah. So, and also seeing if you eat more vegetables, and you reduce your alcohol consumption and you don't overdo processed fats, acromancy will come back up. Caloric yeah. restriction and intermittent fasting can raise acromancy too. Metformin, really interestingly enough, hmm. can raise acromancia and um, a certain type of bifidobacterium can raise it as well. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just, I'm looking up uh, like a meta-analysis just 
through the wonders of technology. I can do that as we talk from 2013, just showing uh, some association between the FTO gene. By the way, I've never heard of this damn thing. Uh, and the thing it's is called I, the FATSO gene. FATSO right. gene. That's an easy way to remember it. Um, uh, yeah, there's an observed association uh, between overweight and obesity risk too. So that's interesting. I've always it's, wondered about that with with like regards to a keto diet and stuff too. Sorry, is just there's such a, there's a, there's a, there's a vast deficiency in fibers and same with things like the carnivore diet. And there's all this stuff right now. we like, no, the carnivore diet's great. My microbiome is great. And I just don't know if we've done enough long-term studies to see the effects on these bacteria in our gut that help regulate metabolism, blood sugar regulation, inflammation, all this stuff. So I'm glad you kind of brought that up with regards to acromancia specifically in this topic, but. I think that's the new way that a lot of the, I hope to see more research in the influence yeah. of the gut microbiome, because there's connections to everything from autoimmunity to weight, to allergies, like ectopic conditions. So I think so much relies on, on the gut. And unfortunately, so much of what we do in North America damages the gut microbiome. You know, you're preaching to the choir with us on that one. We get it, right? Like it's mm. both Dave and I are, are gut loving naturopaths. So um, it's, it's a big deal. And I don't think I could drive that home enough for the audience what we do in our, in our typical modern day society really does have a big hindrance on our gut microbiome. So I'm glad it kind of segued into that conversation, but, um, so you were talking about the limitations with say, um, people coming in and eating several small meals a day, um, like a myth or, or people who have tried that particular type of theory for weight loss and they come in and they still find that they're struggling or keto dieting and they're struggling. Is there anything else that you find, mm -hmm. um, is, is another one that people come in and say, I tried this, it worked for so-and-so, but it's not working for me. Yeah. So of course the over-exercising. So some individuals will produce more inflammatory cytokines like IL-6 when they overdo exercise. So that mm. could be overdoing cardio, that could be overdoing weight training, right? So I think resistance training is amazing. I think cardio is fantastic for cardiovascular health and so many other benefits in terms of mental health. But I always tell patients you're exercising because it's good for your body, not for weight loss. And mm -hmm. if you're not sleeping and you're super stressed, and you're sacrificing sleep to get up to go do an hour of cardio in the morning and you don't enjoy it and you hate every second that you're doing it and then you feel really sick after or really tired, it's probably not the best type of exercise for you at this moment in time. So if we can look at how we can mitigate some of the inflammatory markers, work on some of the hormone aspects, then what happens is individuals then feel motivated and say, okay, now I'm ready to do that exercise again. In that period of time, are you asking them to take a step back from exercising or are you just modifying how they approach it? Depends on what they're doing mm -hmm. and depends on um, what we're planning for the nutrition strategy. So if Got we it. are looking at um, keeping exercise in, then we can't do the same nutrition strategies, right? We, we have to make sure that we're supporting the body with enough protein and with enough calories overall in order to sustain those exercise programs. If it's for a mental health community aspect, then yeah, let's keep that in. But if an individual is telling me that they're exercising and then they're really tired and taking a nap right after, or they're really sore and they can't walk for a week, you, we have to take the exercise out. You're not going to lose substantial amounts of muscle in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I always wondered about like, you know, maybe it's the body's just fighting on too many fronts sometimes with whatever resources you have. And then your resources will be limited by what your gut can actually like, you know, tra- uh, assimilate. So if you're, if you're trying to heal the gut at the same time as exercising your face off, uh, something's, something's got to give. Right. So I do, does that, does that in like, does that, um, play into how you're managing people? Like if, if you say, um, if you're going to heal the gut and I know you have a, a, a great gut healing, uh, product, I think I had, I had a patient come in who took your product, small oh, world, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I looked at it, it as like, that's a great gut healing product. Like it wouldn't make it very much different if I had to like design one from scratch. And I thought, um, yeah, so good, good job on that. Uh, I forget what it's called. There's a great product. What's it called? It's gut revive. Yeah. It revives the gut. I should have known that anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm like, I'm thinking, uh, how this applies to exercise. Like I generally would think I don't want people exercising like crazy, which requires like tons of repair. And mm-hmm. like, you, it just, you made me think of this when you said someone's like sore after exercising, are you going to do like a gut healing protocol? at the same time as, as them working out like crazy or is that a no-go for you? I think the problem is in terms of exercise, individuals are doing like high intensity interval training with weights for like 45 minutes to an hour, right? So yeah. technically high intensity interval training should be shorter durations. Like this whole idea that you're just throwing your body around for 45 minutes to an hour, it's it's a lot and it's very taxing and that can overproduce inflammation for a lot of individuals. So I do like to scale it back. If we're being very intentional, such as the metabolic reset program, I'm saying walking, yoga, stretching, like this time is, you know, that hour that you would have spent exercising. Now what you're going to do is you're going to, that's your self-care time. You're doing something to help heal your body. Mm -hmm. Then what we do in the maintenance plan is we add exercise back in. So it's interesting to see the weight changes, right? So I'll have individuals, I'll look at their their plan. I'm like, oh my gosh, your weight went up like three pounds yesterday. What happened? They're like, oh, I went and played tennis. I know I'm not supposed to. I was like, you're not probably fueling your body to do two hours of tennis, right? So that to me is a really big inflammatory reaction Mm -hmm. that it was just too much, right? So too much because you're not fueling your body, but also maybe you need to start with, 10 minutes or 20 minutes, right. something a little bit easier. And that's always a very tough discussion. I don't get a lot of, I mean, my niche is more gut health, parasite cleansing, liver, gallbladder stuff, but I do get people coming in who have the intention of losing weight as well. But a lot of them are over exercisers and it's, it's, I find it a very challenging conversation to get them to understand that they're working against their progress in the moment based mm-hmm. on all these other confounding factors. Um, so kudos to you for however you're articulating that to your, to your clients and getting them to, to be on board with the process. Cause I find it could be, that could be a really big challenge is getting people to not feel like they have to work extra hard. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're, it's almost like it's a punishment for what they ate the day before, right? I feel like exercise should be a celebration for what your body can do. Um, and it needs to be used strategically. Like even I was saying, I was exercising again, it's like 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? Nothing crazy. <laughs> nothing the crazy. genetics sometimes can be helpful, right? Because in the genetic report, yeah. it will clearly say, you know, this is the type of exercise you'd be better at, mm-hmm. or you can show um, cortisol levels, inflammation levels. 
Um, or I, I just say, humor me. Just, just don't <laughs> for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and I love then, it. then go do it and see what happens. Like if you repeat the same time and you don't feel good enough times doing it, eventually an association is made. Yeah. I know it's just persistence and compassion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about these cases where we do say someone does a fairly good job, they see a naturopath or whatever, maybe they're not focused on in weight loss or weight management, but they do a fairly good job of the basics. And then, uh, so we call them like a very resistant sort of case. What are, what are your little, uh, you know, clinical frameworks or pearls that you have for people who have that resistant type where they're like, look, they're not over exercising, they're eating all right, their guts in fairly good shape. Um, what are, what are your, what's your next level stuff that you're sort of looking into? So I find most commonly that insulin's higher than we otherwise would want it. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're really working on the mindset piece, you're making sure sleep is there. There's no sleep apnea. They're getting a restful sleep. They're doing all the right things. Their job isn't super stressful. Then what I would do is look at the fasting insulin ideal levels. I like to see it 20 to 40. Um, for Canadian ranges. So that is pretty low for a, a fasting insulin. It's it's not, I don't think it's too low, but I'll see patients in the 160s or the 300s. Their blood sugar is actually normal. Their hemoglobin A1C is normal, but that insulin's really, really high. So when we can educate on what that means and how that's going to really impact them, then what we need to do is implement something to help lower that insulin. And while I work with a nurse practitioner, I'm at the advantage where I can say, okay, here are the pharmaceutical options we can use. And sometimes they, they are indicated and work very well. So depending on the levels, we say, here's the natural approach. There's things like berberine, there's things like metformin, which has really great research on it, even impacting positively the gut health. And then there's other types of medications such as um, Ozempic or Sexenda that are more injectable medications when used appropriately in small dosages and then worked up, I've seen it be tolerated really, really well for patients. So as much as you know, I'm trained in naturopathic medicine, I also want to use things that have research to support them as well and, and providing you know, all the options for patients. Mm-hmm. What, are these, what are these medications? Uh, how, do they, how are they working? So for some of the impact, it is reducing appetite. So for some individuals who just have a really hard time managing their appetite, it can do that. Now, if you overtake Sexenda or Ozempic, it can make you feel a little bit nauseous. The goal is not to use these medications just to make patients feel sick so they don't eat. So that's where sometimes I find that they get um, a bad rap. Like if you're using them at high dosages, the point is not to make patients throw up so that they lose weight. But if you Google them, that's some of the reviews that you might see online, they do tend to lower insulin levels in general. So helping with the insulin resistance or that lock and key on the outside of the cell. The nausea comes from the delay in gastric emptying. Not all patients will experience that, but it's not surprising if it, if it does. Yeah, interesting. I haven't heard of them, but I was, I was wondering if there'd be some effect on the stomach because of the manual stuff, I, the manual interventions like osteopathic interventions I do on the stomach. Oh, interesting. It always goes along with appetite. And yeah. um, I, I can, like, I'll be working on someone's stomach in real time and they're like, ooh, I'm hungry. Or like, my nausea went away. And uh, it seems, 
we, I don't know, we think about like the ginger working centrally in the sort of nausea centers of the brain and, and this, and so I always thought of, I, I often thought of like nausea and hunger as being sort of not just some major input from the stomach, but there is some major input from the stomach. So it's interesting to hear interesting. that that's how they work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a GLP-1 agonist, right? So it, it does have that impact on, on the stomach. Typically, obviously these medications are used in individuals who have diabetes, right? But right. if someone has an insulin of 300 and their hemoglobin is 5.6 or 5.9, if you can intervene earlier, then you can slow or prevent the, hopefully prevent the progression of diabetes, right? There's, there's some people that really do do well in those medications and there's others that do really, really well on berberine. So it's always about my goal is to provide the patient with all of their options and informed consent yes. with the combination approach of my colleague, the nurse practitioner. So we say, you know, here's the conventional approach, here's the naturopathic approach, and we can always repeat your blood work mm -hmm. and whatever one you choose, we want to repeat the blood work to make sure it's working specifically for you. Mm -hmm. Insulin's a big one. And I, I don't think your measurements are too low. I've always been under the impression that fasting insulin should be below 50 um, and I've often had people who are struggling with weight management or just a variety of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and their HbA1c and their fasting glucose is okay. And I said, but if I don't understand where your fasting insulin is, cause what if your body is having to overcompensate to maintain yeah. these levels? And I feel like it's such a missing piece of the puzzle. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, and, and I some had... people, sorry, you go, no, 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 go ahead. There are some people where the fasting insulin is okay, but if you do an oral glucose insulin tolerance test, for whatever reason, their insulin's fine fasting, but when they consume the 75 grams of sugar, their insulin now all of a sudden at like the one hour mark is way high, mm -hmm. which if you just did the fasting, sometimes you do miss that. I have been ordering that to our uh, fasting insulin and glucose Those challenge. patients will hate more. you. I know you can send them. So you can do have them go for fasting, right? So you get the fasting level. Then you can have them go to go to McDonald's and get the pancake breakfast with no butter, all of the maple syrup and the orange juice. And that's about 75 grams of glucose. <gasps> and then they drive back to the lab. <laughs> oh my God. That just grosses me out thinking about that though. I, I know. Like I know, but I'm just like, I don't know what's worse. But it would feel kind of good too. It would yeah. feel kind you know? of good too. And like, my naturopath said I can go have that. Yeah, go get some yeah. pancakes. My naturopath said to come in after the McDonald's break. I know I just, I'm like, wow, we're live on Facebook. <laughs> Everyone's like, this is exactly how I'm going to do my glucose challenge. But you're but right. It's the, the same the... thing, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, not with the pancakes, but. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so interesting, but a good tip about the two hours because, <laughs> but the thing is, is I've actually had people's fasting insulin just naturally show up a little bit elevated. And then I do the home IR and I'm like, oh yeah, you're, you're above what's considered normal. That alone, I'm getting a lot of people just showing up right off the get-go like that. So. And it depends how they feel, right? If your insulin's 70 and your weight's easy to maintain and you're feeling really good and your energy's great, then yeah. perfect. Right. Yeah. 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 Don't have to die on the numbers. The the numbers uh, are helpful in the context, the clinical context, which we always talk about. Absolutely. Yeah.
Is uh, just really quickly, Brian. Is there anything else that you find to be part of those resistant cases that you think is um, an important topic to touch on outside of insulin specifically? Mm-hmm subclinical hypothyroidism. So the TSH is fine, but that T3 is lower. We see a lot of that. Um, I've even seen patients where their whole thyroid panel is fine, but their thyroid antibodies are, are really elevated. Mm-hmm. I, for whatever reason, they do still have all of the thyroid symptoms. And I see that a lot. And of course, there's not much research to suggest if you lower the thyroid antibodies, is it going to impact their clinical signs and symptoms but i see that in practice if we can get those antibodies down people do tend to feel better i think we had we interviewed um dr carolyn stone from arizona and she was saying a lot of doctors even out in the states they they just run tsh like they do here in canada and she was saying they often don't bother running antibodies because it doesn't necessarily change how they're going to support the thyroid but i'm like you where i'm like if i'm seeing the antibodies high i want to do something about that i want to become a bigger problem and if antibodies high that means your immune system is working in overdrive and there's likely some sort of inflammation as a byproduct of that totally and that's going to make weight loss worse And even in the grand scheme of things, at least then you know that you need to monitor it over time, right? Like if your antibodies are higher, you're at increased likelihood at some point in time of having a a frank issue with your thyroid. So at least you know that you have to monitor, monitor yearly. Yeah. Make me a better naturopath. What do you do when someone's got uh, thyroid antibodies? Like, what do you, what do you even, is there some specific thing that you do? Are you going back to, oh, Dave, treat the patient. You don't treat the person. Like, what do you, what do you (laughs) make me better? So there are some associations with certain types of gut infections. So we see H. pylori, Yersinia is another one. So I often, if there's gut symptoms and it's feasible, running a, a stool test is great. Also things like N-acetylcysteine, selenium has some okay research on it and using low-dose naltrexone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, very interesting. Uh, okay, so what I've noticed, this is pretty cool i think well i'm a nerd but anyway um my threshold for what's cool is quite low probably anyway um the fact you bring up the h pylori is really interesting to me because what i've noticed lately as i become like a gut whisperer and of the of the organs that i whisper the stomach is like my new cool bff like, and I really get the stomach probably it's, it's a super dynamic organ. If you had to like give it a personality, it's way more like dynamic, I guess you could say than like the colon, which is like a boring friend. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I've seen, this is, you're going like, what the hell are you getting at? I'm getting at this point that I've seen a lot of correlation and I don't know the causation between uh, thyroid disease and stomach proper issues mm-hmm. and i've been trying to figure out because ex- i'm because i think more in this like anatomical structural relationship the more i get into it the more i find it's more helpful than any other framework i've ever used mm-hmm. um but that that in- that's very interesting about the h pylori thing that you're saying yeah so there's obviously it's not causation but there definitely is an association that's mm-hmm. statistically significant between patients who have autoimmune thyroid conditions both graves and hashimoto's and an h pylori infection so h pylori 
can inhabit up to 50% of the population and it creates no issues. But because we're seeing it statistically significant in higher levels in those with the autoimmune thyroid conditions, then we know that possibly can impact. Even there's research linking H. pylori um, and unexplained infertility too. So looking hmm. at um, measuring some of those, those impacts too. If, you, if you're not digesting your foods properly, too, right? You can't absorb your iron. Like that's mm-hmm. a big one, even for, for thyroid function too. Absolutely. So even if I'm, if I'm seeing H pylori, even in less than normal threshold, I'm still trying to treat it. And there's actually some really good research, um, on things like mastigum, oil of oregano, peptobismol, it contains bismuth, anti-H pylori. I've repeated that protocol many, many times with some pretty good success. Cool. Pepto-bismol, eh? Didn't think I'd ever want to reach for that again, but there you go. After four to six a day for two weeks, yeah, you're you're not wanting it anymore. <laughs> oh my goodness. Awesome. This was cool. I like this. I think that it was uh, a more dynamic approach to, to, to helping people understand weight management and the ups and downs. And I think we touched some really important topics where people come in with certain preconceived ideas of what should be working. Um, or what they expect to work, like more extreme dieting, like keto dieting, or eating the five small meals or over-exercising. I feel like, especially the over-exercising, it's a very like old school. Counterintuitive. Too. It's counterintuitive yeah. for sure. It's counterintuitive, but it's very old school kind of thought, like calories in, calories out. I eat and mm-hmm. then I burn it and then it's great. So um, it's. I think this is very helpful for people to begin to recognize that their body is much more dynamic than just calories and burning calories mm-hmm. um, when it comes to managing weight and that there's a lot of different moving parts. And I'm glad we highlighted the insulin because that is a big deal these days. So thank you for bringing these um, important, um, I don't know what I'm saying, but thank you for bringing that to light for the discussion. Um, Cause I think our audience will appreciate that and start to look at it differently and, and to, to not be so uh, black and white about their their diet to take a little bit more like kindness for the body in more than one way. Mm-hmm. That's really what it yeah. comes down to. Yeah. Right. For sure. I find a lot of people don't respect their body and that's why they struggle. <laughs> and it's finding ways to be kind to your body again and learning what it's trying to tell you. So I think mm-hmm. you helped bring that into the conversation today. So I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Thanks You're for welcome. having yeah. me. And made me and made me a better naturopath while, yeah. while doing so. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm really glad that you brought the mind body, the, the mind piece and the mindset piece in, cause that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just not blaming, like there's so much blaming and like, this is my fault and I've done this and really doing the testing combined with understanding why your body is behaving or like presenting a certain way um, can be really insightful for people, right? Like our bodies want us to feel good and our bodies want us to survive. And sometimes what our body thinks that we need is, is different than what we actually need. So just kind of being gracious to yourself, right? If you have an underlying condition, it's, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 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 Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much. Brian. Thanks for having me. That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. 
Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada.